Well, without further ado, let me get the real mark time on the Skype here. Hello, Hello, David. I am here. Good evening, sir. How are you? Good evening. I'm great. Well, so, looks like a nice sunny day up there in Washington. It's beautiful. I can uh, just point this out oh, the neat. window there a little bit. Beautiful. And you can see. And you live yeah. on an island, don't you? A Wimbley Island or something? Um... Uh, Wembley, Wembley Island, no, Wobbly Island. No. <laughs> okay, I Not wasn't sure. Yet. No, Whidbey, Whidbey Island. Whidbey, it's ah. About, it's about 35 miles north of Seattle. Um, it's a very long island, about 50 miles long. Huh. It has uh, a, uh, only a bridge at the, at the northern end and the southern end. You take a ferry to get onto this island, so you have to think about it. Okay. Well, just uh, at the beginning here, for those who might not know, how did you become a member of the Fire Science Theater? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, we were all nominated at the same time by Peter Bergman in October of 66 when Peter said, uh, you, got, you don't mind if I call you guys uh, the Oz Fire Science Theater, do you? And we all said, no, come on, let's go. You were working at the station or something like that, or...? Um, well, Peter was doing Radio Free Oz and had been doing it for about um, five or six months. Mm-hmm. Individually, Phil Austin was the engineer and producer for Peter most of the time on, uh, on the air. Peter worked with somebody else for a while and uh, kind of gave that up. I was a fan uh, and listened to the show all the time and dropped in. So and I knew Phil Austin uh, otherwise, and so Phil and I and Peter would do the occasional late night show, and uh, then Phil Proctor, who was a Yale uh, classmate or was a year away from Peter at Yale, um, discovered him in Los Angeles. Appeared on the show. Was uh, Peter loved him? It was all very funny. We suddenly the four of us were billed as the Oz film festival and we went on the air as two or three characters apiece uh, and convinced the audience that we were showing movies not only that we were showing them but they were being censored we got outrageous phone calls (laughs) and by the end of that we knew uh, we we knew the power we had it was the power of radio you could really you could convince Anybody of everything, of anything you wanted to do. It, it's the classic war, war of the worlds, you know. You, you, that's what, that, that's the trick that radio could, could play. And we did and had a lot of fun doing that uh, at, at the beginning the, uh, as, mm-hmm. as, as the four of us. So really, the, we, we just were the Fireside Theater right from the beginning. Uh, sometimes it was Peter Bergman and the Fireside Theater. Sometimes it was the Oz Fireside Theater. But it and 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 that's how we ended up. Very cool. Uh, what was Judith referring to when she said uh, uh, the War of the Worlds? Was there something else that she wanted you to talk about? Uh, no, you, you know she thought she thought this 
Uh, actually, a couple of our movies are being shown at the World Science Fiction Festival. Ah. And she, she wanted to remind me that, not, not that the War of the Worlds, but uh, the Martian Space Party. Oh, sure. And uh, Everything You Know Is Wrong um, are at the science fiction. She thought you were connected with science fiction rather than with, sci you know, fire sign in, in general. Oh, so, okay. Which reminded me that those films are going to, uh, and beautiful prints of them, the ones that are going to be issued uh, on DVDs sometime in the fall, if it ever comes out, the super collection of Firesign, uh, early Firesign film. So uh, at the Worldcon, they'll be showing those primo prints, like nothing you've seen, like nothing you've seen on, 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 on Facebook or wherever it is they show these yeah. awful stuff. <clears throat> Well, uh, you said something about uh, maybe a DVD project on Facebook? Yes. Uh, the, DVD, the DVD, Taylor Jessen, who is our archivist, Taylor has been working, as is his want, for several years, making sure that everything is in place. <clears throat> and um, it looks like it's going to be a two-DVD set that... Uh, will have you know be anchored as they say in the in the in the the mall business. It will be anchored at both ends by uh, the 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 Martian Space Party, which was 1972 live performance uh, mm -hmm. at at a certain a great I think a great height in our uh, just getting on stage and and doing that kind of show. It's very rock and roll. And, and all live, all, and all done only once, you know. And then uh, uh, Everything You Know Is Wrong, which was a film that we lip-synced to the album. Oh, really? <laughs> and we said, look, if, if MGM musicals could be entirely lip-synced, why can't we do it? No problem. Good point. And uh, so, you, so you either learned the lines, you kept your head away, or they got away from you, or whatever it was. But it's very convincing. And uh, there's there's we had to leave out um, the, uh, the the Carlos Castaneda section uh, of the movie because it was supposed to be animated, but of course <laughs> there were there were let's say limited funds and animation was going to cost too much money. Sure, of course, but uh, I was wondering you were also talking about, or at least there has been talk about a fire sign documentary movie. Is is this what you were talking about, or is this something different? No, that is something different, and we have, um, well, we've, we've had one filmmaker, uh, a reputable filmmaker, uh, asking us about a, uh, a, a, yeah, a documentary film project, something that would, it would be in someone else's control and would use, you know, all this material, I guess, other interviews, I don't know, mm -hmm. you know, documentary. Um, Sounds like a great idea. And I think that I think that may indeed happen. the The phone, as it were, the email rang the other day with, with someone else who said uh, that they had just won a couple of prizes and they thought doing a documentary about the Fire Sign Theater would be right. Ah, you know, mm -hmm. so that's that's in the air. <clears throat> um, I think the other thing that may well be in the air is a scholarly or semi-scholarly collection of of. Uh, pieces on the Firesign Theater. Hmm. Uh, I'm just in contact with a professor at Cornell who just made a, um, a presentation um, in, in Seattle at the EMP Museum. Uh, uh, they had a concert pop, their pop concert. And uh, he gave 
quite an interesting paper on on the fireside theater, which he's going to amplify and and we're talking about that being the basis for a collection of uh, as it were scholarly pieces on fireside as a cultural phenomena. Well, whatever the take is, you know, there's um, there's a wonderful book on um, on sound that just deals with us totally, almost totally, as producers of sound. Huh. Uh, uh, and, and you know, whatever take. I've met a lot of people recently in the uh, in the academic field. I'm doing. I've done a piece on Norman Corwin for a, a, a collection of academic. Uh, otherwise academic articles about Norman Corwin, his radio career, who he was, how he grew up, what he did, what he produced. And mine is about, is, is called The Odyssey of Me and Norman Corwin. And it's about, I, I, he was the first radio script I ever read. And I was young enough to want to play the character in this radio script, The Odyssey of Runyon Jones. So he was very important in my life. And uh, I finally met him. Uh, actually, Ray Bradbury introduced me to him, well, and we and and we did his. We did this huge production uh, in 1991 of the uh, the 150th anniversary of the Bill of Rights, and it's a, it's a it's a great and glorious 11,000 word story, which is going to be published in this collection by. The University of California Press. Who knew, you know? So there's this kind of world of of, uh, of academe that I'm that I'm touching now. I'm also doing a project that's bringing back my um, uh, the interviews that I did on the radio, 1960, 61, in New York of young then <clears throat> young New American poets. Um, the, I published a book of some of those interviews called "The Sullen Art," and the tape collection has been uh, in uh, a, a university library. They finally got enough money together to digitize it so it's available. Uh, talk, there's a lot of that going around. So I, I've done a new edition of that book and uh, just finished the other day uh, digitizing the uh, 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 or not, uh, not digitizing but transcribing the uh, interview with Allen Ginsberg, which was one of his very early uh, interviews, Christmas time, 1960, huh. great piece, uh, another 11,000 word, uh, uh, not really an interview, not really a conversation, he holds forth in this piece, great piece. So, you know, it's, it's bringing back the, the past in many ways and, and collecting it, I mean, I'm just as busy now otherwise, but you, we're here to talk about uh, uh, how time flies, if and, you like, or anything else. And there it is. There, there, there it is. There it is. I I, I just pulled out the album just to, to look at it because I was thinking it's all about the black hole, which of course is in the middle of the record. That uh, that fold out that was in the original albums, you know, the LP albums, was really cool. I wonder how you came up with that idea. Um, it was because I, I saw and purchased a very large format, I guess 11 by 17 probably, uh, a reproduction, I think it was Marvel Comics, uh, could have been, been Superman, could have been Batman, and it was this large format, and in the back of it, they had a similar cutout. Mm-hmm. 
that was stageable. So the background was, would be three dimensional because it was curved and then it was contained, you know, by 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 paper hooks. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's really cute. And the cover of the album, the uh, cover artist, you know, this was this was that's the cover, the front cover, and then it rolls right over to the back cover. Unfortunately, they can't see the video. This is this is there, radio, sir. <laughs> there it is. Just showing it to you. Okay. So you can see it. Uh, done by a guy named Joe Garnett, and uh, yeah, I had I had the original vinyl. Yeah, yeah, and it has a black hole in the middle, which I think was one of the things that inspired the creation of the album. Um, the cover, the the cover, and the insert were important because there was a certain amount of. Um, I felt Mark Time being a cartoon character, mm -hmm. cartoon hero. In those days, there were you know the cartoon hero world was much less populated than it is now. There's no room for Mark Time out there anymore. <laughs> <clears throat> but he had evolved from. I think the very first mention of Mark Time was in uh, Bozo's as one of the rides that you could take on the Funway. Well, there's a cut on Dear Friends, actually, that is a Mark Time. I, I, I played it at the top of the show. That's right. And that would have been the year, um, that would have been the year before. Okay. And yes, I wrote that, that one episode, brought it in, everybody improvised it, you know, their characters on it. Um, and it seemed like a funny idea and a funny character that we'd hold on to, you know, and I did a lot of more writing as the years went on. <clears throat> um, but then, yes, then it pops up on Bozo's. And it seemed in 73 when everybody ran away and did all of their, uh, you know, solo albums, mm -hmm. as we used to say in the 70s. That's your <laughs> solo album. <clears throat> And Columbia was indulgent enough, or we were self-indulgent enough, to uh, uh, to do three really interesting albums. I think TV or Not TV, which is the Procter & Bergman album, that came first. How Time Flies uh, came second. And then the next year, uh, Phil Austin's uh, Roller Maidens. They're all excellent. Uh, and they really make, if you pile all those albums on top of each other... That was where the Fireside Theater was, kind of at the end of Bozo's. There was a, there was my very specific need to tell a story mm -hmm. and have an identifiable character that you could follow through with something. Uh, there was, uh, uh, you know, Procter and Bergman's ability to play off these two characters who were trying to do something that two people, you know, trying to do the impossible, basically trying to be artists, uh, you know, 50 years, 40 years at least before the actual time uh, where entrepreneurial guys like right now could set up their own Skypes and do or whatever's and do their things. Mm -hmm. uh, um, that was very, very prescient of them. Okay. And that, that was characteristic of Peter, and I think it's something he brought very, very strongly to the to the group was the this prescience about the future, and um, uh, and then Austin's was took the 
the process of clicking from channel to channel, which we get created, and of course that became everybody else's idea, uh, but creating the channel switch, what Phil did was to be able to go have characters on television go between channels. Mm-hmm. Right. That there was a world between channels, kind of. And I thought that was just a brilliant, really brilliant idea. And he sings, he does, you know, four songs, three or four songs uh, on that album. And it is quite a, a high for him. And I think it's the best thing. Although Proctor and Bergman went on to do a couple of um, of subsequent pieces that were were strong, but they weren't as as theatrically or fireside the- theatery strong, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So you know, so so uh, the Mark Time character seemed to be the one to go with, um, and I had this idea about an astronaut who would return to uh, Cape Canaveral. It was then Cape Kennedy. I guess it's back, um, and would find it closed. You know, it seemed, it's always seemed to me that the, that the American space program landing on the moon, it was really the most interesting thing this country has ever done. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, otherwise, it's in the war business. And yeah. it, But, you know, between the Hubble telescope and landing on the moon, and, and, and can you imagine putting something down on a comet? I mean, give yeah. me a break. That's just, that's just, that's worth everything, you know? So... Instead of that, they're targeting guys in cars driving at 60 miles an hour across it's the desk. pretty silly. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, and I, so I loved the space program, and I thought, well, it, you know, it, it, what if it comes to an end? What if he came home and there was nobody there? It was closed. And he had this great story to tell. And so it was around the, those kinds of notes, you know, um, that, I, that I began. How did you originally come up with the Mark Time character? I mean, what was the... And the, the inspiration for that particular character. Well, I know that, you know, the Mark Time was based on radio's Mark Trail, who was a... Oh, okay. Uh, who was also, I think, he's a, a newspaper cartoon, I think, also. He's, and he was a guy who was <laughs> Mark. He, he was a, you know, forest ranger or something like that. Mark mm-hmm. Trail. Right. And, and, of course, Mark Twain, you know. Oh, of uh, course. It was was obvious, and then um, the the question of time. I think we spent the Firesign Theater spent a lot of time on the question of time and moving through time and what actually time was, or or as brilliantly expressed, <laughs> what is reality? You know, <laughs> uh, we we were always worrying about that uh, that idea. So Mark Time seemed obvious. The, it, it, it all it gave us good language, and um, the idea of having, and, and this was you know considerably before, I guess before Star Wars, way way before it was. We did it first. It would be 1970. Hmm. I mean that's ages ages ago. The album was uh, 71, and then uh, How Time Flies the album. Uh, the one that I was looking through the hole in the black record through. Uh, <laughs> it's, that's the black hole. That, that when We always had this problem of uh, how to get from one side of the record to the other. Everybody, even if they're just put, laying down tracks, the whole thing was side one, cut one, man. What's side one, cut one? It had to be so good. And then 
you had to have a little rest at the end of side one before you flipped it, or else it was so cool that you had to turn it right over. And then at the end, you know, you wanted it to have one of those long board fades, you know, so you knew it was over. There was a whole way of making albums. We all, whether you were making music, everybody else was making rock and roll. We were making comedy. But there's a lot of similarity in structuring an LP album. Well, so, I, I say to, to people every week, uh, your your quality of production is as good as any of the rock albums that were put out. We were working with all the same engineers at Columbia Records. I mean, uh, all of the Columbia albums were produced by in in the in the Columbia Record Studios, CBS Records, CBS Radio City in Hollywood. Uh, by engineers who were otherwise engineering all the other great names on on, on Columbia, and there were a lot of acts. Very remember, cool. in the end, in late sixties, so we had to teach them to be not perfect, because everything that we were do would do would be distorted by some effect. Think, for example, of the layering of. Um, the media when Babe buys a car. Mm-hmm. You know, let me turn on the radio here. <laughs> Layering indeed. <laughs> so there, so so each one of those required a different EQ setting. Let's you know, let's talk. Yeah, let's talk uh, real stuff here. They had to re- yeah. reset each one right. uh, in order to sound like a television, a deep FM radio, which was always had that deep low end, and then you play a real crappy record on it. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, television, and television, mm. and, and, and uh, uh, not hi-fi, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, shortwave, which has its own sound. So each one of those is a degradation of sound. And what the engineers at Columbia were used to doing were was making perfect sound. Yeah, of course. So we taught them and worked with them, and they loved finally doing it. We were with one engineer for a long time, um, uh, creating the reality of whatever media it was that uh, uh, we were trying to recreate the sound of. I mean, that, that's we were that was in our minds all the time, and um, in. It's interesting that uh, you know I, I haven't I didn't I didn't have the time today to re-listen to, to how time flies and how it uh, how it works. But I remember one of the things that I wanted to do was do the voice of the system of the robotics that ran that runs the thing. Mm-hmm. Two okay, two thousand and one had come out. I will admit it. Hal was already there. Hello, Dave. You know everybody said right. that for a long time. Dave. So so what I came up with was sort of a punch card device. I recorded, uh, I think, six different people saying random words, inflection, let's just say the random words. And then in creating whatever it is that the system says, uh, cut uh, randomly, more or less, into those uh, voices uh, to create a system that talks. Yeah. Each word separately. Really creative. Uh, uh, well, and that, that you know that re- that required cutting tape, which is what we did in those days. Oh yeah. Um, also, we used a, a machine that is now legendary, the Mellotron. Oh yeah. 
Okay. I didn't know that. This legendary uh, um, uh, electronic piece of equipment. It's I, sitting in the studio like, like you know, everything else. It just I played sits. Moody Blues on the opening set. Oh, well, there you are. Yeah. Mellotron. So uh, uh, there it was, and we could program it. And so the music backgrounds for the years in your ears, are those are all produced on a Mellotron. Wow. <laughs> And I was looking at the cast list, you know, what a great cast. Uh, Wolfman Jack is in it because somebody came to me while we were in recording in, uh, at uh, uh, CBS and said, Wolfman Jack, he's here to make an album. Do you want to, can, can, can you use him? I oh, said, he was perfect. Man, Jack, are you kidding? I'll, I'll write him in. And, uh, and in fact, I was at the point where I was writing the, the section where the newsmen are describing uh, what's happening at Panorama Land. And um, I had Lou Irwin, uh, who was a newscaster, well-known newscaster, and he's, he's a Facebook friend still. Uh, he, he was a well-known L.A. newscaster, and he was on KRLA when Radio Free Oz was on KRLA in, in uh, the summer of 67, summer and fall. And so I knew I wanted a real news a newsman voice, and then the opportunity to have him work with a Wolfman, and I gave him a script and I said, "Just do your thing, you know. Just work around it. Just the two of you. Just play with play with the script." Well, well, it was so perfect that I've had people ask me if it was really Wolfman Jack or somebody, you know, just just pretending to be Wolfman Jack. No, that's him. <laughs> Oh, that's it's a real that's the real guy. He of course was very uh, gracious, and I uh, and like everyone who grew up in Southern California in, in the fifties listened to him. Oh yes, across the border, um, and were you know were he's he was he was the heart of a certain kind of radio. So I, it was it was a great thrill for me to have him there and that afternoon and and, and do that scene. And then Harry, you know, Harry Shearer, who would know that Harry Shearer would go on to, you know, high heights of fame on The Simpsons and everything else that Harry has been doing steadily. I was going to mention the- Harry. He was just so good on that album. He is, he is, yeah, that was his then girlfriend, Penny Nichols. Oh. Uh, and I, and I wrote that piece when he, and he, but he really pulls it together in the way she's, she's kind of, she's a folk singer. So, uh, not an actress, which mm-hmm. was okay by me. Uh, it sounded like his wife, you know what I mean? Yeah, but it, it worked sounded, great. Yeah. And, and they their voices worked together really well. Uh, uh, Harry at that point was in credibility gap at, on KRLA, the same time we we were um and doing commercials and gigging around town uh, the same way that we were that everybody was at that point um and i used him again i've used him as many times as as i can in producing uh radio theater pieces because he's so versatile and dependable and incredible character actor absolutely uh and a, a voice artist like like no other you know Right. So it, so I would always have had him on. And uh, who else is on this album? Oh, yeah. Um, Richard Paul. Richard Paul was a great, funny actor on television that we knew. And he actually played George Papoon 
in the great campoon of 1976, where George uh, uh, was running for president, uh, and we had a huge, um, uh, not a campaign, but a convention in Santa Barbara uh, in, in 1976, which nominated George Papoon for president, and Richard Paul was uh, played, and he always had his head in a bag, of course, a paper bag. <laughs> And so nobody could, uh, you know, so nobody would know really whether it was George Papoon under there so he wouldn't get shot. You know, presidents were getting shot at. Left this is and true. Right. Even, even, for heaven's sake, Jerry, Jerry Ford, you know. Yeah. So you had to take precautions. Um, and uh, George Sirebiter was running for vice president. There's a story running for vice president, let me tell you. That was one. And then, then we did cast... Um, a number of uh, locals, as it were, um, and also um, Helena Kalianiotis. Gee, I got through her name just fine. Tongue twister. Helena was. Helena is in uh, the uh, Jack Nicholson movie. She is the waitress, and he's trying to get some toast, and she won't do it for him. It's a famous scene in the Five Easy Pieces. Uh, Rent it and see it. She's just wonderful, and she she was she was a, a, a very famous belly dance teacher, um, uh, um, among a lot of other things. Uh, she was Jack Nicholson's, as it were, housekeeper. Uh, everybody needs a kind of major domo or matron domo, and she was Nicholson's. Uh, and 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 we we knew her, and so uh, I thought I would love to hear that voice. So. She's she's on there, and then and then she had made that movie with, with Nicholson, and that very funny scene. So I wanted to recall that. Um, some people from Santa Barbara. I wanted uh, real voices in it, so you'll hear some of the voices of the people who are like the the, uh, uh, the command central, rocket central. Um, they are. They sound like real people, and they are real people. Because I thought, can I mix those voices in with these incredible voice artists who can do, you know, five different characters? I don't know who. I can't even remember what Proctor does. Of course, he fills in wherever he, wherever he is. He's hang, would hang around in the studios, just waiting for. Can I have another line here? I go. <laughs> so, and he's a terrific Tweeny. Uh, just a just. I just love his characterization as as Tweeny. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think, uh, once again, uh, staring through the middle of this album, I think the black hole, that is the inevitability of coming back to the center of the album, once again, of it returning that uh, Mobius strip of time, uh, dissolving back into itself endlessly, that was the, that was the... Yeah, that's how the album ends. That's, yeah, that's the, and it was a spatial me metaphor, really, for sure. the... For, for how it worked and, and, the, and the structure of it. And it's just like, um, you know, if you listen to all of the Firesign albums, really there's a divide, except for the first one, uh, which is more presentational in a um, electrician, um, in a comedy album, as if there were such a thing at the time sort of way. Uh, but immediately we begin to try to figure out is obviously the first time is on Nick Danger when he go when they go to the other side of the album, you know, and something yeah. else is happening on the other side of the record. Mm -hmm. Always puzzled with this and how to how to deal with this. Welcome uh, to side five. 
the film goes dead in uh, in uh, uh, dwarf, and and comes back on the other side after going what black, mm. you know. So there was always a, a a way that we came up with that was part of the writing process. Uh, it was figure out how to how to end the side and come out of it. Uh, Zippo and Bork Gorko come out of the uh, uh, the other side of. Um, Everything you know is wrong. You know, they've interrupted the broadcast. Mm-hmm. So there's always a way. You must have more questions. I've been going. Well, I was going to say the first four albums all really sync together, and uh, so it's not just you know from one side to the other. It's even from one, from one album to the other. Well, yes, it is, and that that was deliberate because. Uh, but we had to learn that we were going to have a second album first. Well, that's true. And uh, and and. Uh, and then they did seem to link in in the sense that they were all moving toward the same kind of story. It's the story we always wrote. Um, and if you go to the very, if you go to go to the twenty first century albums from Rhino uh, and hear the evolution of the characters, um, our radio voices who morph in. Uh, uh, give me immortality or give me death. Uh, we become uh, another variety of radio people than the ones you're used to hearing entirely. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, certainly uh, the Porgy and uh, Mudhead characters and Nick Danger uh, undergo this very interesting transformation after all of those years on that last album. And nobody really knew it was going to be the last album, but since it 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 brought those characters home, you know. Um, I, I, I it feels good to me that, that that was the last one. Also, they're all really really well produced. So absolutely, yeah. It, that that last album that you did, obviously, Bride. Uh, it it really did feel like uh, you were bringing some closure to all those characters. Yeah, I think we felt in that in that beginning with immortality, we felt that we were were. Um, looking at, as it were, our fans who now were responsible adults and had jobs and what would they, who would they be and what, they would, what would they be doing, mm-hmm. you know? And Hal and Ray, who had come all the way from um, uh, Everything You Know Is Wrong, evolved into this gay couple. Yeah. <laughs> and which, which just came, uh, you know, they're just, their evolution as characters is that's the way they went. And uh, Phil and I had had a great time with that. Um, yes, yeah, fantastic. Austin solidly, you know, his L.A. noir voice, you know, come, becomes a Chicano voice from also from Los Angeles. Very natural uh, transition. Guy who has a wife and a baby and something to worry about, you know, and all of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're very, very sweet uh, movement of character from. Uh, those radio voices, because most uh, most listeners think of us for those first four albums. Most people, um, and if they're and for the radio programs that uh, that we did during that time, and soon for the films that we did during that time. So, and really the scripts that we did that are also available. That's been a, a it was a labor of love. You know, there are scripts for all of the radio shows that we did. At the Magic Mushroom in '67, and all of the uh, live stage shows 
that we did in 67 and 68, including this really political stuff, profiles in barbecue sauce. I mean, it, this, it, we, we were, we were, it, we were uh, on the more or less home front lines. It was a very political time. It was indeed. It was. Well, remember that Kent State happened in the middle of right. uh, of Riding Dwarf, where suddenly they're <laughs> the, the you know Porgy and Butthead are surrounded. You know, suddenly they're taking this. That's what happens. I, I didn't know that that was a, a reference to to Kent State. That's Kent State. Uh, yeah. Well, it was going on in the news. If you parallel the events actually in the news during the writing of that album, it's almost day by day. Well. Wow. It, all of that is going on day by day. And we're just, we're, you know, it's just coming out in the, being reflected one way or another uh, in, in, in the writing. Um, uh, one question that people have asked is, are the mushroom plays going to come out on disc sometime? Um, okay, this is an interesting topic. Th there is one mushroom play that is missing, apparently. Um, Taylor is loath to put out the whole set without that one missing program because he is a completist. Uh, that's that's the way he works. I wonder if Pat might have that in his collection. No, I, believe me, he knows everybody and has been through everybody's collections. Okay. All right. Uh, we're pretty sure that either nobody has it. Here's the thing. The Magic Mushroom shows were recorded on three seven-inch uh, uh, reels of tape, or four, four seven-inch reels of tape. Sometimes five or six seven-inch reels of tape. The reel that contains those half-hour shows from each of the master recordings was pulled, we think deliberately, obviously, but we don't know by whom or who has those files. Uh -huh. So there is a half hour uh, missing from, three, eight, from 12 three-hour programs. Here's the thing, friends. I've got all of those shows. Peter gave me all of his Radio Free Oz archive wow. uh, from 66 and 67. It, it, it has never been digitized. I I, of course, I dare not listen to it. Uh, yeah, you that's know. something to be careful with. And, uh, and so if there's something that, that would be interesting to, um, to work up a crowdsourcing uh, fund for, mm -hmm. it might very well be to have uh, Radio Free Oz digitized and then uh, uh, worked into some... I, I, I have no idea right now how to make them into... Uh, broadcastable programs or really playable programs uh, without knowing what's on them. And there's just amazing stuff. There's all there's interviews. I mean, there's interviews with all kinds of uh, rockers and I don't know, the monkeys were there and the Hare Krishna guys were there. I mean, yeah, it, was, it was 1967, Hollywood. Come on. Yeah, of course. Uh, there, it's, a, it's a historic archive. And uh, and right now I'm sitting on it because I feel that it needs to go uh, into obviously into an archival collection. It's not really a Firesign archive, really. It it should have its own special place as Radio Free Oz, you know. 
and go along with the other uh, iterations of Radio Free Oz that Peter did during his lifetime, and there were several, you know, including uh, uh, the, 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 the whole last two years, two, two and a half years of Radio Free Oz. Um, and, and remember, you know, here's something else that's missing, all the XM shows. Oh, really? The XM, no, they're they're not missing. We have them, but they're they're missing from from everybody's collections. So that's another thing that has to come out. And they are e- either two hour shows or one hour best ofs. And I even edited them down to just four discs, one four CDs. You know, mm-hmm. trying to get the cream of it, like doing a Dear Friends. I did all of the editing on on the Dear Friends shows from the from the. Uh, that's a very good idea. So there's there's many ways of accessing those shows, and that's um, that's that's 22 hours of brand new Fireside Theater live stuff. It's uh, uh, so the 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 archives are really really big. There it's really a lot of material, and it has to go someplace, and it has to be digitized, and and he, and those Radio Free Oz shows are literally historic, you know. That's yeah. what's going on right then, right right then and there in in Hollywood, Los Angeles, Sunset Strip, Riot's whole thing. That's what was going on. Very topical. So, and there's a wonderful one of them that I that uh, was otherwise copied has um, Phil Austin giving the KPFK Evening News, very serious, actual, real newscaster voice. And uh, uh, re- reading about the war in Vietnam, hmm. and the bombing continues today in Hanoi. You know, I mean, he's just—it's just the—it's the real thing. So you contrast that with with the fake thing that we were doing all the time that was meant to be the real thing, and you hear Austin actually doing the real news. It's a mind fuck. It really is. That would be great to have that out. No doubt about it. But uh, you really need to get that professionally digitized before the tape uh, starts corroding any more than it already has. Oh yeah, well it's 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 been well kept. I mean, it's been kept in I won't say temperature controlled, but it certainly wasn't sitting in Boston during the winter. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So so it's it's all right, and and uh, the people who digitized my um, sullen art tapes. Uh, the guy is in L.A. He does everybody's stuff. He, you know, he does Warner Brothers. He does everybody. So uh, they 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 go to a real real pro when they go. But I think we're looking at about somewhere between eight and ten thousand dollars. Well, it sounds like a, a crowdfunding thing would be a really good idea. Let's uh, yeah. Yeah. get to talking See, about that. Shake that up and see if there's any interest out there. I mean, I know people are raising huge amounts of money for movies, but you know. Oh yeah. Say. I think it be um, done. I, I haven't mentioned Steve Gilmore, and I certainly should have. Sorry, Steve. Um, Steve had Steve was the um, uh, the producer of the Martian Space Party movie, mm-hmm. and um, he was the person I called on when I the next year when uh, they offered me the chance to to do a, an LP, and I said, "Well, I need a producer." Uh, we had been all of us working together, and we've been working through the engineers at CBS. I really didn't feel mm, totally confident about it. Okay, so um, I put brought Steve on board, and uh, he was the producer certainly. Uh, 
uh, we he we directed you know he we, we share direction credit because I was in front of the microphone a lot of the time and uh, he was he's really the the co guy on that album and uh, Steve I still see Steve um, who does a thing now called the Gilmore Gang and it's all into high tech he's totally a high tech guy. Um, uh, but he he was the um, you, you'll see him somewhere if you see the uh, uh, Martian Space Party. I think he's I think his face shows up in there somewhere. Is there any chance you can get into chat into the fire sign chat? Because I'm sure that people would like to ask you some questions. Um, just firesigntheater.com/chat. Right now, let me see if I can do that. Okay, com. said, no, don't do that. I don't like Apple. <laughs> uh, <laughs> look for Firesign Heater in history. Oh, I love this. Dot com. Slash. Chat. Bingo. Hey. Hey. There it is. Okay, what do I do now, Leaf? The just, Lucky? Just put your name in there and... Uh, right, which is enter a chat name and yeah, that's, then go. That's oh. it. Okay, I'm going to put Tire Biter in here. That's to confound anybody who's masquerading as Tire Biter as they all like to do. Go. <laughs> okay. Um, Merlin has a, uh, has a message here that says, Tween, you might need to, need to tell him to type in the bottom box... Oh, yes, the bottom box right down there. I'm so dumb. Yeah, that's it. Well, type here. Type here. How's that? Send to all, right? How's that? Oh, gosh, it's so complicated. Send to all. Go for it. Go for it. No, all. There it is. Send to all. Yeah, it's easy. Right. Okay. And there's Mr. Tirebutter in red, which shows that you're a member of the Fire Sign Theater. Oh. All right. It says, squeeze the wheeze, uh, shoes the chromium switch. Gosh, what an honor. Greetings, David. Holy schmoly. All right. <laughs> What's the question out there? Come on. Well, how about I let you talk with these folks and play that fine album that we were just speaking of? Why not? Sound good? That's good. Let's do it. Thanks very much for coming on. It was great talking hey. with you, David. My pleasure, my pleasure. I'm glad you called, and it was fun for me as well. So uh, have a good time. Until last time again. <laughs> <laughs>